Welcome to the Religious Studies Project, listeners. My name is Christopher Cotter. I'm joined as ever by David Robertson. How are you, David? Very well. It's December now. Um, the year has sped on and we're almost in 2017. And we're brought to you as ever by the BASR, Nasser and IAHR. Nasser have just had their AGM at the AAR conference. I'm sure everyone's come back from that with some exciting new collaborations and new ideas and uh, some new ideas for you today um david's been speaking with susan palmer about children in new religious movements and so i'm going to pass straight over to david and he'll tell you all about it i'm here in bedford it's a beautiful sunny afternoon at the last day of the sen sam conference on millenarianism and violence i'm Happy to be speaking today with Susan Palmer, welcoming her back to the Religious Studies Project, one of the small group of people who've made a return <laughs> visit. So first of all, thanks for returning to the Religious Studies Project. That's a pleasure, David. We're, we're going to be talking today about children in new religions, in new religious movements, which Susan did her keynote presentation here about, but it's also... She's just about to start a major research project on the subject. Maybe the best place for us to start then is just for you to tell us, how, you, how did you get interested in the idea of, of children in particular? Well, it all started with my PhD thesis, which was on women's roles in new religions. And the time I had two young children when I was doing my research, so when I would go to visit these groups, the Hare Krishna, the Unification Church, I would sometimes have to drag my children along because I didn't have a, a babysitter. I had you know, two children. And so then the focus would be on, they would ask me about my children and they'd introduce me to their children and we'd be talking about motherhood. And I wasn't really that interested, but I was humoring them. And then my children used to go off and play with their children and I would realize on the way home that my children found out much more about was really going on it than I did. <laughs> so I sort of inadvertently got interested in the idea of children in new religions. And I ended up co-authoring, well, co-editing a book with Charlotte Hardman called Children in New Religions. And recently I've come back to the topic because several of the groups I'm interested have had quite a lot of conflict with society mm. about their children. And in fact, James Richardson made the point, which I agree with, that the old brainwashing allegation or controversy yeah, is sort of pretty well died down. And one way you can, you know, the, attack new religions or criticize them is by focusing on the children. And certainly groups that are sectarian, who live in a commune or who live out in the country and have a lot of children, make people nervous, make their neighbors nervous, make social workers nervous because they don't really know what's going on. And in today's system, children children go to school, children go to doctors, and you have close neighbors. So everyone can keep an eye on how, how you're raising your children. But if you're off in a you know, millenarian commune somewhere in the country that doesn't practice medicine or does, or does homeschooling, authorities get suspicious. The anti-cult movement has, I think, exploited the situation by publishing materials in which an ex-member might say they were abused or had a miserable childhood, or they take 
isolated statements by the leaders and show that the children are in danger. I mean, of course, there are some groups, in fact, where children have been badly treated and abused. There's no doubt about that. But there is this tendency to, certainly in anti-cult literature in recent years, to assume that children in cults are separated from their parents or that the parents are following orders from the charismatic leader. And when Margaret Singer says children are Parents are middle management in cults. She uses that term over and over again. So what struck me is there's so much variety in how children are perceived, the role of a child, and how they're brought up, and also in just in the patterns of the family as you look at the different groups. And it's sort of an ephemeral period. Childhood is over quite quickly, and many of the groups aren't even prepared for children. They weren't even thinking about children when they started. And then they have to improvise and sort of make up, you know, education and so on. So it's not very well documented. Many of the groups don't really document their own process. Some of them do. Like the children of God have very um, rich documentation on all their experiments in their communal life. And even like how they wash dishes. I think it's an important thing to study, but also it's difficult to study because many of the groups have had problems with social workers and, of course, custody battles. When there's a couple who join a commune and one of them leaves and wants their children to leave with them, they, they might contact the anti-cult movement, use their philosophy or their, you know, their theories to in court to get their kid out. So... There's a lot of social forces today that are that are putting pressure on alternative religions to raise their children in the same way as secular children. And I've witnessed raids on children with this group I was studying in France, the 12 tribes. They were raided, their children were raided in Vermont and then in Germany. And when I was visiting them in France, there was actually a raid right under my nose, but in this right. case they were picking up the fathers. And then there was the polygamous Mormons in Texas, the storming the Zion people, whose children were taken away. This seems to be something that's happening today. There are several forces at work. First of all, this, there's this idea that our mainstream secular culture is, is the highest type of culture, or the, the yeah. right culture. So we want to give children an opportunity to develop and choose their lifestyle and and get a good education so they can have a decent profession. And that if a child grows up in the Mormon polygamist compound or the twelve tribes mm-hmm. or you know, inevitably they're being deprived and it's sort of our duty to give them all the rights of a citizen and remove them. And of course this is this violates the rights of the parents to practice their religion and raise their children in their own faith. And it also violates the rights of the children to be able to live with their parents and, and brothers and sisters. So it's it's a terrible thing the children experience when they're when they're taken away. And they're often they're put in these orphanages. Well in the case of the twelve tribes, these children are put in orphanages or homes for troubled teens or foster homes and you know, rather cold environments or yeah. not very nice environments yeah, yeah. with terrible food and so on. In the case of the yearning for Zion, these children were just 
plunked in various foster homes and the and it was even hard to sort of organize to get them back because they're so widely scattered. So so that's one thing. And then the other thing is there seems to be this cons- well, you were talking today about conspiracy theories about pedophile rings. Mm-hmm. So there's often this idea that if a char- there's a charismatic prophet who's a spiritual mystic, he must also be a pedophile. Somehow it's a package today. And of course, you know, you do have the odd charismatic leader who does fancy very young women or antisocial tendencies or sexual appetites. But I get the impression in many cases this is just mud that's sort of thrown at them randomly and it's, it appears in the media and has a devastating effect. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, The Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, um, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people that are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it would be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. You've made this point before in your book on the Nuwabian nation. You, you make the point that this is not only quite a common allegation against uh, cult leaders, but black cult leaders in particular. Well, Presumably that allegation, that, that allegation relates to the, this idea of the child as you know, kind of vulnerable that you were talking about before. Yeah. I feel it's really important that we study different groups and get a lot of data and that we look at the variety in, in child-rearing patterns, the variety in how children are perceived mm-hmm. and also in the family and how the family is integrated into the commune. And so we won't have these kind of monolithic stereotypes about children children and cults. You know. How does the child work kind of as a symbol? What is it that makes the child such a, a powerful kind of discursive unit in all of this? Well, Mary Douglas in her book, Natural Symbols, she looks at the idea of the body as the perfect vessel that represents the whole group and the idea that the group is inviolable and, and has no cracks. And there's tremendous concern in some minority, well, religions or minority cultures, in diet and sexuality. And she sees that as those are the two if you like, holes with which they, foreign elements can come in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if the group can control the diet and who the person marries, then they can protect their culture from assimilation. So she talks about the Virgin as an example, as, as a symbol of the community, you know, the Virgin Mary mm-hmm. among the early Christians. Yeah. And you can, you can, she doesn't actually talk about the child, but you can see how in, in the literature of some of these groups or in their ritual practices, some of these groups are, are very child-centered. So 
their whole community is looking at the children and intent on breeding these perfect children. And the children are their hope for the future. The children will usher in the millennium. Their children will fight in Armageddon. Their children will be the 24 elders who will rule beside Jesus in the millennium. The children will be the 144,000 elite, mm-hmm. and so on. So, I mean, some groups, of course, have zero interest in children. And children don't even go, they don't allow them at their meetings. Mm-hmm. They don't even care if they, they join or not, you know, like the Raelians, for example. Yeah. But other groups, it's extremely important that the children carry on the religious mission of the parents. And their education is very important, and the control is very important. And they are the hope. So, I read this book recently called The Child and Post-Apocalyptic Cinema, which had a lot of great ideas which apply to this situation. The editor's name is Debbie Olson. Um, said that the child is, is this idea of the future, but also the past. So, for example, the 12 tribes, they dress their, their children to look like pioneers from the 1800 or something. So when you go there, you, you feel a sense of nostalgia. You feel you're stepping into early America. And our children represent the goodness and the simplicity and the beauty of country children 150 years ago before things got all screwed up. You know. But also this idea that the child is represents this new humanity that will arise after the destruction of the world. Well, that's, that's nice because that ties into this kind of millenarian model of time that, um, I mean, we've been talking about it today, but we've talked about it on the, on the Religious Studies Project a few times, that millennialism, although it seems so focused on the future, is actually a way of tying the past and using the future as a lens, but ultimately with the pivotal point of being the sort of present day. So for somebody who's involved in one of these relatively kind of exclusive or the kind of new religion that, sh- that to some degree shuts itself off from the rest of a sectarian kind of movement, then you can see why children would be so important because, as you say, they're not only embodying the future, but they embody the ideas of the past. And the person, the parent, is, is almost creating that perfected version of the past in the future yes. by creating these children yes, yes. and controlling the particular set of yes. circumstances and influences that they have. Is the importance that children have in these kind of sectarian groups, is that the reason why they're so often the site of conflict? Yes, I think it is. It is, of course, very upsetting to the parents and the leaders in these groups if somebody leaves and wants to take the child out. Mm-hmm. There's this um, right-wing Catholic in Quebec called the Apostles of Infinite Love. Their leader was a mystical pope. And they had a monastery in which families would join and then the couple would split up and become celibate monks and nuns and the children would become the children of the monastery and live this very Spartan life. When people left, usually it was fathers who left actually and wanted to take their children out, the attitude of the group seemed to be, but the world is is an evil place, it's going to be destroyed, you know, very soon. And we can't let these poor children. So they felt it was very much their responsibility not to let the children leave the group, which was like a Noah's Ark. So they had some very intense conflict and struggle that involved four 
police raids on helicopters and so on, and, you know, hiding children. Their, their mystical pope actually went to prison for two years for sequestration des enfants, you know, kidnapping or hiding children. And, of course, we don't really know if he did or not, because he, he just said the mother just left and sort of went underground, so that's possible. He said, my people are free to do what they want. I don't tell them to do so. So on one hand, in these groups, often there's a very strong reluctance to let the children go. And from society's point of view, there's the idea that we can't let these poor children be deprived and warped and indoctrinated in an unrealistic worldview that thinks the world's going to end or you know is patriarchal and sees women as second-class citizens who should get married as soon as they turn 18 and so on. So it's a very intense... There's a very intense struggle going on there, cultural battle. Yeah, in a number of cases, these conflicts have led to the state visiting violence upon children in these situations. I mean, we could mention Waco, for instance, or uh, the... Tell us a little bit about the situation that you you mentioned, uh, this bombing. Yes, I was talking yesterday about MOVE in Philadelphia, and I find it amazing that many people don't know about MOVE I teach a course on new religions at Concordia, and when I mention MOVE, everyone looks blank. But my students have all heard of Waco and Branch Davidians and David Koresh. I had never heard of this. But um, in 1985, the city of Philadelphia, the orders of the mayor were to drop two bombs from helicopter on a row house in which a new religious movement called MOVE lived. And they're usually depicted as, well, they were political anarchists. Mm-hmm. And they were mainly black, though they, there were quite a lot of white people living there too. Five children were killed in the uh, bombing, plus uh, six adults. When you say a bombing, I mean... They literally dropped two bombs. It's unbelievable. That's, yeah, that is insane. <laughs> I can't believe yeah. what they did. I mean, this was 1989? 1985. May... 13. Yeah, wow. It was mainly to get rid of the... They'd created a fortress sort of bunker on the top, which they... And they had rifles, and they used to patrol this bunker and and shout out criticisms, you know, loudspeakers, and all the neighbors hated them. And so it was mainly to get rid of that bunker and make sure that they all just left. But the trouble is there are policemen surrounding the house shooting people who left, so they couldn't win. And then the mayor didn't want... The fire trucks to come in, he wanted to wait because he wanted to make sure the place really burned down. Right. But unfortunately, the rest of the neighborhood caught fire and 61 houses burned to the ground. Yeah. It's incredible when you look at the pictures. It's, yeah, it's yeah. amazing. The people who live, the, the neighbors have been warned to leave, so the houses have been evacuated, but a lot of them had left their pets at home, and all the pets died too. Yeah. It's terrible. But well, as I mentioned in my talk, the police, you know, in the meeting between the mayor and the police department, the city councillors, before this happened, they were talking about the children and they were a bit worried that if they went in and arrested the men, the children would be used as hostages by the, the MOVE people. Mm. And they were also worried that these children could be dangerous because they were like little wild animals and they might weapons. So they saw them as little gorilla warriors or something. The point that's made in this book by um, Robin Wagner Falici is that 
you know, they probably wouldn't have dropped a bomb if it had just been ordinary American kids. Right. But yeah. they they saw them as either being little wild animals or being, mm. you know, guerrilla warriors. Or, and you often find that in, in anti-cult books or in media reports, looking at children in cults, they can be seen as sort of scary, sort of like in the village of the damned by John Wyndham. Yeah. Little aliens or they could be seen as brainwashed little yeah. zombies. Stepford children. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My girlfriend once pointed out to me uh, that this shift of seeing the child as putting so much importance on the children and their innocence and their importance and how much you have to nurture them and childhood is this magical time. It's very much something, it's quite modern, it arises in the Victorian era, but there's this tension then, isn't there, between, you know, the Victorian era is the classic example of, yes, for some Victorian children, it was a magical time where they, you know, they got to and be free and innocent, but for, you also had the vast majority who were you know, living in absolute squalor, ridden with disease, high infant mortality, child prostitution, all the rest of it. And so there's this dichotomy, isn't there? This feeling of bodying innocence and higher values in children happens at times when there's an awareness of inequality of power. And I wonder if there's something going on there about our relationship with power and our ability to maybe a compromising position of being an adult or something. I, I, mean, I don't know. How do you think this, this relationship to power structures is working? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting idea. I think, well, a lot of parents who go into new religions are, are rejecting you know, the state. They're rejecting the authority of the state. But, of course, then they find themselves under sometimes even more controlling kind of authority within the group. But they can accept that because it's spiritual but and it's personal, maybe, rather than any sort yeah. of impersonal, distant power of the state. Yeah, it's charismatic. It's not bureaucratic. Mm-hmm. But then if you read media reports or anti-cult literature, they tend to think that the trouble, one trouble with these groups is don't know how to think. Like children discouraged for, from independent critical thought. Mm-hmm. So they grow up very, very passive and rather stupid. But if you, if you read some of the literature by ex-members, for example, Pierre Pointe-Noyes, who was the, one of the sons of the leader of the United Perfectionists. And he, he is the most rebellious, mischievous, critical kid you could ever imagine. And he describes his childhood with tremendous humor and so much vitality and so many little rebellious escapades. And, and then you have Krishnamurti, of course, who, who was raised to be the avatar and basically refused, you know, yeah. rejected his role and, and spent the rest of his life criticizing religion and, you know, coming up with his own yeah. philosophy. I find just going to these groups, you, you find that the children have often have this kind of subculture. Like, I went to mm-hmm. one group and the parents were telling me that the children, I won't mention what the group was, they said, we don't believe in giving our children an allowance, we never give them money, we don't let them eat candy, and we don't let them play with toys. And then my children went off and they said, go off in the woods, you know, and play. So get, get them out of my hair. So my kids went off in the woods. And on the way home, I said to them in the car, so what did you do? And they said, oh, 
our friends took us in the woods and we dug up a treasure chest. And I said, what was in? Money and candies and trucks. <laughs> I thought they are doing the real research. Actually, Charlotte Hardman makes this point, too, in, in our early book. I think it was published in 1998. She's an anthropologist who's done work on the anthropology of children. She notices that children often have this kind of subculture within a culture, and they think they see things differently. And I certainly found that visiting some of these groups, that children have their own cult within a cult, if you like. I mean, that's often the case. In my work as well, I would... Even in a relatively small group, you would get the official version, but then when you, you hung around, I used to always hang around and try and have a drink with people and or go to the kitchen and help with the cooking and things like that. And you would get, you know, the more gossipy side of it would start to come out and you realise, you know, this this situation is just as complex as any other yeah. social situation with all sorts of different levels of discourse. You know, a lot of the conversation we've been having here is reminding me of... Uh, Obviously, there's been quite a lot of stuff about Scientology has come out recently. Going clear being the sort of most obvious example. And it ties into a number of different things. First of all, this movement away from the idea of brainwashing towards children being in the frame. Indoctrinated. Indoctrinated, but also physically harmed. There's been much more of a shift recently towards looking at L. Ron Hubbard's relationship with his own kids. Oh, really? Um, yeah. One, um, I think one of his children committed suicide and the other one attempted That's suicide. Right. I believe so. That's probably wrong, but at least... Well, I know one of them committed suicide. Yeah, and the other Quentin one... I think the other one also... Cute. I think the other one attempted it as well. But um, also, in going clear, the guy... His, it was his daughter coming out as homosexual that caused him to end up leaving the church. Oh. So again, it was children were involved. But when you were talking about this portrayal of people not being able to, to think properly and having their information limited, that's exactly the narrative that he gives. That, you know, When you're in Scientology, you don't get to question it. Except, of course, we're hearing this from somebody who did question it from within Scientology. Yeah. So it is, you know, the narrative doesn't really yeah. work, and it, it's playing into so many of these little discourses that you're talking about yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for speaking to us again. Um, another big subject, but this has been a really exciting introduction, and maybe bringing up this idea of generationality, but maybe we, in another year's time we can meet up and talk about old people in uh, new religions. <laughs> thank you, David. <laughs> um, but thanks, as always, for speaking to me. Old people are fun, too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And thanks to Simon Robinson and Sensam for inviting me down to that conference where I recorded that interview and two previous episodes. Um, we hope to have uh, some news about forthcoming collaborations with Sensam again mm -hmm. in the new year. But I'll say no more about that for just now. Yes, indeed. Um, so we've passed Black Friday. Subscribers to our MailChimp and our social media may have noticed that Sammy put out a, uh, a notice about that. But uh, we're coming up to a major um, Western post-Christian religious festival fairly soon, which usually means that people buy lots of material goods. Festivus. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you might want to do that through uh, Amazon. And if you do, and you're in the States, Canada, or the UK, you can use the Amazon links on our website, and we will get a tasty little percentage of that, and it won't cost you anything extra. So do click through when you're buying any gifts in this festive season, or indeed at any other time. And we are immensely grateful for your support, as always, and... A special shout out to anybody who's 
become a patron on our Patreon page at patreon.com project rs next week um you can come back to hear our final interview based podcast for the year we do have our festive special coming up after that and next week it's um brianne fallon speaking with david feltmate on his book drawn to the gods published with nyu press so we're really looking forward to that absolutely other than that before we get to our uh, pre-recorded spiel chris you've got something you want to say Thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett and our opportunities digest by Yana Shirley. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio assistance from Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or by donating at patreon.com backslash project rs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.